some jazzy music. <laughs> I um, <clears throat> am so grateful to your pastor, Mark. If you, I don't know if you're new. Their pastor is Mark, if you haven't been here. Um, <laughs> for making sure that the only time I get to come speak to you this year is on a day when a hurricane hits. And also, it's on a passage of scripture that is based and centered on trials and temptations. I feel like this got passed off on purpose. I'm not going to lie, that's not prophetic, that's just me looking at the situation and assessing things. But we're here and we're going to make the most of these moments, amen? Um, I say things like that. I, uh, those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Chris Kilgore and um, I've been friends with your pastor. Actually, your pastor was my youth pastor uh, a long, long time ago and, um, for him. And uh, I uh, was, ha- have been raised and still am um, a member of the Church of God, which is a Pentecostal denomination. Uh, we don't have ordained people in the Church of God. We have bishops. So technically, I'm a bishop in the Church of God, which always feels weird to say. I feel like I need a different kind of hat to say something like that. But um, so when I say things like, Um, amen, and I expect a call and response. You don't have to say anything back to me. That's just habit. That's how I've grown up, and that's who I am. So, but if you want to say amen, that always feels good. So, um, feels less like a zoo, less like I'm just looking at things that I don't understand. So, like, we're in this together. But um, if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 2, 1, excuse me, verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. I'd listened to the sermon that Mark had preached last week, uh, after it went up online, because I wanted to see what he said about the first verse. And it was curious to me that he would um, say that uh, just because he was only teaching on one verse, don't expect the teaching to be shorter. That's almost a direct quote from him. Particularly now that I have 17 verses that he gave me. So for the next three and a half years this morning, we're going to look at the next section of James and try and make sense of it. Um, but in, in, all, in all reality, this is a long passage, and there's a lot of dense material. It really is. And um, so I'm going to move through this text. We're going to read the whole thing first, and then I'm going to move through the text with, with kind of four concepts that hopefully will flow in and out from one another. The danger here, and I'll explain this in a few minutes a little, a little deeper. The danger here for me is that this is going to want to sound like a lecture. This is going to want to sound just like someone teaching, and I, I don't want it to be that. Because I think in order to feel the gravity of this text, it, it's not just about learning. It's, it's about sensing in a deep place what God is trying to say to us. And, and so I have prayed um, at length this week that the Spirit of God would let this sink deeply into who we are, regardless of how I present this. Uh, but I will do my best to get Pentecostal and make it really interesting. So James chapter 1 verses 2 through 18, 18, goes like this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. First thing, I want you to feel the gravity there. Feel the weight of that. This is not the friendly passage. Like, John would never have written this. This is not the way that he writes. This is James, and this is the way that James writes all through the book. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Say, say first fruits, because all of you are farmers in here. That, we'll just leave that be. We'll actually get there later. So I know that everybody is very familiar with agricultural language. Um, is anybody farm in here? One person. Two. Two. Pray three, four. See, praise God. People that actually grow things. Thank you for being here. Honestly, we wish the room was full of you. But most of us grow digital things. Like we grow scores on games on our phones. So it's a different kind of agriculture. But um, trials and temptations. In Harper's back in 2001... There was an article written by a guy named Rich Cohen, and this would have been a much better illustration had the Cubs two years ago not actually won a World Series, but Cohen was talking about the Chicago Cubs, and uh, they hadn't won a World Series since 2008. It was nearing a century of, uh, of seasons where they couldn't seem to put together a championship team, and he says this. He says, when the Chicago Cubs last won a World Series, the automobile was still a new and untrusted invention. In the years since that series, most of the European monarchies have collapsed. Two world wars have been fought, communism has risen and fallen, and disco has come and gone and come again, apparently with the music that we had in the leader here. Losing year after year, sometimes in the last weeks of the season, but more often back in the middle of August, the Cubs have become a symbol of futility the blind, never-ending hope of a hopeless people. And before his death, Jack Brickhouse, the great Cubs play-by-play man, said this. He excused the team for all their failure, saying this, everyone is entitled to a bad century. <laughs> Struggles and trials are a part of life. James is very clear about this. And it's not that we don't know that. What James is going to do in this text, remarkably, is he's going to hold up two ideas 
One is explicit in the text and the other is implicit in the text. And he's going to ask us to hold those two things together in harmony when those two things are actually things that we believe contradict each other. There's a way that I want to talk about this text. There's an order that I have laid out for this text because I think if we work through the text in a linear fashion, then all we do is get depressed and I tell you that there is a pill that you take at the end, like a God pill, and everything is better. But I think what we've got to do is flip that over and start in a place where we talk about God first. Instead of talking about trials first, we talk about God first. And And so the first point that I have, and you've got it in your sheets there, I, I, made, I checked it, is this. It's the question, who are you and what do you, what do you want? And that's the question directed towards God. Directed towards God. Let me read this. This is, this is the summary of this section. I actually wrote these last night because I think my notes are far too complicated for anyone besides me to read. And that's because I wrote them. It's not that I understand complicated things. But... So I tried to summarize these things so at least you would take this and then you can ignore me for the next six minutes and then we can move on. If you can keep an accurate picture of God in front of you, you can trust him when things get difficult. If you can keep an accurate picture of God in front of you, then you can trust him when things get difficult. The explicit thing that James says in the text is this. You will experience trials. He says, count it joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds, that were various simply means of all kinds, that, that life will come at you from any number of directions. It is a fact that if you have not experienced that yet, you are either extremely young. My daughter will be in the service, uh, the second service. She's in kids' church this morning. She wanted to come with me, which I was thrilled with, and she wants to sit through one of these sermons. Um, and so the second service, she's coming back in here to sit. I have no idea how that's going to go. I don't think she's ever listened to me preach. Um, and she's either going to lose a lot of respect for me or fall asleep. One of the two. Those are the options I've got. But she, at 10 years old, has experienced things in, in school and in church and social settings with relationships where she has gotten into my car. Um, and, and, and she will start to tell me something about some whatever girls do when they back and forth with each other. I don't, I don't know what to call it, if it's fighting or if it's being catty. I don't know if, I don't know if the word catty is actually you know, a, a weird word that we can't use anymore. But anyway, they will go at each other and, and she will start to cry to me and I will listen to her cry. And, and in true fashion, I will give her a solution to her problem. And that's not what she actually wanted, apparently. So I've learned nothing over the course of 41 years. But even at 10 years old, she understands that trials are a problem that she has to deal with. Now, obviously, trials are graded and scaled based on the amount of responsibility that we have in life. The more responsibility you have, the greater your trials will feel, the more weight will be pressed down upon you. But James tells us you will experience trials. Difficulty is a part of life. It's not something you can escape. That's the explicit thing that he says. The implicit thing is this. This is the harder part. He said, God knows your trials and chooses of his own will not to stop them from coming. God looks at us in the midst of circumstances, not distant, mind you, but imminent, near to us, beside us. His spirit dwells within us if we are believers. And he says, I know that you're underneath a great Wait, and I am not going to stop it. 
You see this throughout the text, right? Like when Moses, after he beat the guy to death in Egypt and then ran away, got in another fight at a well, which is how he won his wife over. Guy was a real fighter. He's dealing with fear and guilt, and God appears to him in a bush and does not say, it's going to be okay, everything's going to be all right. He says, I want you to go back to the place where you were guilty of murder, and I want you to then tell that king to let everybody leave his land. All right, that, that's, not, that's not Teddy Ruxpin God coming in to say, I'm your buddy, and we're going to be okay. That's God saying, I am absolutely going to make your life harder than you ever thought it could be. David kills a giant, writes poetry in the fields, loves God perhaps like no other human being has ever loved God. So how does God reward him? The heart of the king turns against David, and he's on the run for a decade, living in caves. He goes to his own enemy's land and drools all over himself to act insane, to make it out alive, and God walks with him through that decade, but God never says, I'm taking this away. You're going to have to walk through this. This is the blunt part of the Bible. Now, hopefully, since I've been here before, you understand that I love to talk about the grace and the love of God, and I believe those things are powerful and more mighty than anything we have in this world, but there is a reality to Christianity. There is a reality to God that is uncomfortable, and James addresses it head on at the very beginning of this letter that he writes to Christians who are, being, who are dispersed. They're in the dispersion. This is a, a Jewish term that he co-ops to use for Christianity. He says, you are going to be under pressure, and God is okay with it. Not just Just is God okay with it, but God actually says, I'm glad that you're there because there are certain things in that pressure that can only be produced by that pressure. So three times in the text, James says, this is God. In verse 5, in verse 13, I believe, and then in verse 17, James says three things about God. He says, first of all, in verse 5, he says that God is a generous and giving God. He is generous to all, and he gives to all without reproach. That means God doesn't see us when we're weak and says, I'm sick of you being weak. Just figure out how to do it on your own. He says he generously gives to all. Later on, he's going to say that God is not the kind of God who tempts anyone. He never leads anyone into evil. He is always leading us away from evil. The problem tends to be that we run away from where he's leading can footnote Jonah's story if you want to. And finally, he says that God is the author of every good gift and every perfect gift. And he's actually the father of light itself. He is the creator, but, but he doesn't say he created light, right? He says he's the father of light. He says that When God gives birth to things, when God speaks things into existence that didn't exist, they are light. They are illuminating. They are perspective-inducing. This is what James says about God. Now, he says these three things, not because that's all that God is, but he says those three things about God because those are the things that we probably need to remember most when we're talking about what it means for God to look at us in trials and say, you're not coming out of this anytime soon. Now, see why I didn't want to preach this when the hurricane came? (laughs) 
Because for all that I believe God to be, which is, I believe, him, I believe him to be a rescuing God, a redeeming God. I believe he's a regenerating God, all these Christian words. I believe he's a God who brings us through circumstances. I believe he's a God who comforts those who are broken. I believe that he is a God who heals people who are sick and broken. I believe those things about God every day, and I will never stop believing those things about God. And yet James wants us to understand that when we are in the midst of weight and pressure and trial, God is not unhappy with our situation even if we are, even if we are. So crucial to this point is to understand, I've got a clock, right? I, well, yes, I do. Praise God. Crucial to this point, not that I'll look at it all that much, but I, I just wanted to make sure um, if I'm going to brag when I get back home to my wife about how long I preach, I want to know exactly how long I preach. Um, here is, and, and Mark asked some of these questions last week. As, as kind of an overview of the text. He says, one of the questions he asks is, what does God want for you? Like James sort of answers that question throughout the letter. What does God want for you? And I think if we're going to endure trials well, if we're going to take our turn at those difficulties well, then it might matter. In fact, it matters greatly what it is that God wants for us. In the second half of verse 4 in James chapter 1, he uses three words. Two are connected and one is a phrase. He says that the goal of God in your life, your life and mine, is that you would be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. Say the word perfect out loud. Some of you stuttered it out. You didn't, you didn't like to hear it. Like, we don't talk about that. We haven't talked about that since John Wesley. What are you doing here? This is not who we are. We are come as you are people. You know, walk in any old way. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly true. No one has to be good, clean, or honestly lovable at all for the gospel to meet them, save them, and resurrect their life, okay? They don't have to be anything. However, if we stay there, and if we never set a goal that is bigger than who we are now, then we undermine the very will of God, not only for us, but for the church and for the world. Like, God did not call you to be saved and stop, just like nobody wants to buy an old beater VW van driving across country and wind up in Arkansas and stall. There are very few things I can think of that are worse than stalling out in a van in Arkansas. That, I'm telling you, that's free. That's not in the notes. That's just on my heart this morning. That's the kind of stuff that Wes Craven movies are built on. You understand me? This is exactly what it is. When you look at life and you think, man, I'm saved, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm going to heaven, God looks at you and says, you haven't even scratched the surface of what I want for your life. James says what God wants for you is that you would pursue the kind of goal where people would look at you and mistake you for perfect, even though you will not be. <laughs> Can I just say this? And, and it's a conversation. It's the first service. You knew what you were getting into. I believe in this room, not all of you, but I believe some of you are pushing back against that right now. 
I believe some of you are pushing back because you've heard so long the front end story of salvation that God has made you, has, has loved you just as you are. You've heard that part of the story for so long that you believe that's the only story. I want to tell you something that the Bible tells you, that God tells you, that the Holy Spirit will witness to you. You were not created to stay where you were recreated. You were created to rise again, to walk out of a tomb, to go back into the land. Do you see what happened in the book of Matthew at the end when Jesus is not in the notes and who cares jesus raises from the the dead comes out of the grave and the bible says that there are people walking around who have been in tombs for decades and centuries because when resurrection power hits the dirt it changes the entire world around it god did not call you i'm preaching at this point so this is where pentecostals would amen god did not call you to stay in a place where you look exactly like you looked and james says perfection is your destiny, completeness is your destiny, lacking in nothing is your destiny, instead of walking into situations, being confused about things, and not knowing what to say, or how to act, or how to pray, God says, I have created you with the kind of DNA, the spiritual DNA, to walk into any situation where there is darkness, and bring light into that place, for God is the father of light, and in his light we are born, the problem is that the only way we get there is, is through trials. It's through, it's through trials. Here's the danger of short-sighted living. I, I'd read this, and I just want to share this. Maybe this is because I, I think it's interesting, and I do build some of these stories in because I know I can drone on and on, and I want you to stay interested. Spoiler alert. In Austria, in Salzburg, 40% of the injuries that took place on civic property took place because people were looking at their cell phones while they were walking. It's true. (laughs) Honolulu actually instituted a civic ordinance that says if you are looking at your phone while you're crossing a street, you will be fined and ticketed. First city in the U.S. to do that. In Salzburg, they had a different, a different solution to the problem, like only Europeans can. Just pull out the white flag as fast as you can. They took all of the poles. If you're European in here, I, I'm sorry, but you're here now, so praise God. But um, EU is just a mess. But anyway, um, that's a lunch conversation, not a sermon conversation. All the poles in the city, they put airbags on. I'm not even kidding. So when people are looking at their phone, if they run into a pole, they aren't injured anymore. And on the airbag, after you've smacked into this fluffy European solution, roughly translated into English, there is a red sign that reads, will the next car also be so well padded? When we constantly look 18 inches in front of our face, (laughs) when we constantly look at who we are right now, when we constantly obsess over what God did yesterday in my life, instead of taking a long view and saying, I am created for more, I am created for perfection, I am created to lack in nothing, if we never look out that way, 
then we will always run into the things that are in front of us. You don't drive a car looking at the edge of the hood trying not to hit things. You drive a car by looking hundreds of yards in the distance and you naturally turn and move around the things that are in your way. It is a distance game that God is playing to say, I created you for something that you might never achieve in this life, but if you don't pursue it, then you'll never achieve anything. So temptation is different. This is the second point. It's a nightmare trying to follow me with the points, but this is the second point. Temptation then is, in this text, is not so much, I don't believe, about sin. Temptation in this text, because of the context of the text, is not about sin. It's about seeing the trials that we're in as things that we have to get out of immediately. It's about short-sighted vision. He says, God tempts no one, for God is not tempted himself. You hear what he's saying? God never puts someone in a situation where he wants them or he leads them to see their life as happening 18 inches in front of their face. And God himself is not tempted to believe that life is happening 18 inches in front of his face. He knows because he is sovereign and has perfect vision what is coming in the end. That's why he is so remarkably loving. God knows who you will be. He knows in, 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 in 1 John 3, the Bible says that when we see Jesus face to face, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is. The Bible says the closer you get to seeing Christ authentically, the more like him you become. None of us would think in, the, in, 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 any, in any of our lives that we would be exactly like Jesus. We have set that on some sort of other plane that, that is for people who lived in the second century or whatever. What I'm telling you, and, and maybe revolutionary for you this morning, this, is, this might be worth it, you can just leave now. God says that someday you will be exactly like Jesus. Exactly. Not another copy of, but exactly like him. That means you'll know exactly what to do when you walk into places because you hear the voice of the Spirit. The book of Luke talks extensively about the power of the Spirit. None of this is in the notes. About the power of the Spirit leading Jesus. We can be led by the same Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches us. But temptation will come to you and you will think that in the midst of hard times, what you desperately need is to get a break from all of that weight and pressure. And so the Bible says that you'll be led away by your own desires to do things that make you feel good in the moment that you don't feel so good see temptation is not just sinfulness temptation is not just flipping someone off on the interstate okay in matthew chapter 4 when jesus is tempted by satan himself in the wilderness he is tempted to give up what god had for him by doing it a different way Remember Satan told him the third temptation? He said, you can rule over every single thing in this world if you'll just bow down to me. That's exactly what the father told Jesus. Satan said, if you'll do it a different way, I'll give you the end result quicker. You'll feel better quicker. You'll be full if you turn these rocks into bread right now. It'll be faster than the father wants you to have it, but you can have it because I'm telling you you can have it. See, that's temptation. Bread is not temptation. Power is, or bread is not sin, and power is not sin. And, and trusting God, like he said, you can jump down from the temple. That was the, the other temptation. Those are not sinful. What is sinful is what we're trying to achieve without walking God's pathway. Temptation is always going to circumvent God's will with the 
dangling carrot of what God was going to give you anyway. So in temptations, we absorb now the pleasures that were meant for us in the future by circumventing the trials that we experience in the present. But in trials, we bear up under the weight right now, believing that the future holds pleasures forevermore, which have never even come into our imaginations. What God says is that if we will bear under the trials we have now, what happens in the future will be more beautiful than anything anyone has ever written about or sung about or painted. This is the remarkable thing about trials. They are simply opposite ends of a spectrum. I'd read this in uh, the piece in the New Yorker on resilience. Uh, Maria Konnikova wrote this. She said, resilience is hard to study because if you never experience any sort of adversity, you won't know how resilient you are. It's only when you're faced with obstacles and stress and other environmental threats that resilience or the lack of it emerges. And these threats can be anywhere from environmental to psychological threats. If, if you just look at the experience of having a child, many of you are parents, is there, is there literally, like Chris Traeger kind of literally, is there literally any example better than having a kid in what it means to be tried and tested and come out on the other side thankful that you were beaten to death? Neither one of my kids slept. I'm going to take 45 seconds to whine to you. And, and so we spent the better part of two years with my daughter and then again with my son, uh, probably a year and a half, not sleeping much at night. Um, my daughter, uh, there were some feeding issues when she was first born, and so she wasn't eating well, so she would wake up um, over and over and over again, but it wasn't because she was hurting, it was because she was hungry. Well, obviously, if, if she could have just told us, I'm hungry, we would have fed her, but she didn't. So... Um, all she would do was scream. That, that seemed to be her way. I, I sang Christian songs to her. I actually wound up sa- singing extreme songs to her, uh, like from the Pornography album. So like I was literally at the end of my rope. I thought maybe that'll work. And uh, there's actually a, a, a big band song called uh, New York City on that album. It's really good. So that was what I sang. Uh, anyway, it's neither here nor there. I would walk around with her for 45 minutes, hour, hour and a half sometimes. Walking around the living room, bouncing her. You guys know this? You know this bounce? That's where that dance came from. It's, it's from having kids. And we would bounce. And so after 20 or 30 minutes, she would finally rest or her throat would get tired. And she would lay her head on my shoulder. I would go in. I, I wouldn't even lay her down at this point because I'm not, I'm not a fool. Okay? I would just sit down on the couch. And immediately she starts screaming again. So you get back up. You do this core exercise for hours and hours. And, and I got to tell you, I hated it. Can I, can I say that? With, and, and you feel the force of it? I hated it. I'm an only child. I didn't grow up with screaming kids around the house. I grew up sitting in the sunspots that came through the window, reading books. That's how I grew up, playing with matchbox cars quietly, watching the Dukes of Hazard almost on mute. This was my life. And now, at 2.30 in the morning, a small, pale devil (laughs) won't shut up. (laughs) 
So I got angry. And eventually, exhaustion would overtake her. Literally seconds before it overtook me. And I would lay her in her crib. And my wife did this as well. I'm not, I'm not the only martyr in our house. She probably did it more than me. I just make a bigger deal of it. I would lay her in her crib. And as angry and as veiny as I had gotten, to watch her little chest rise and fall. To watch the peace on her face after she had finally got to sleep. Hmm. Moments I wouldn't trade for anything. You see, when we endure the trial, because we love the one who is with us in the middle of it, the other side of the trial is glory. The other side of the trial is peace. And it doesn't mean that the trial goes away, because hear me, you don't know the kind of peace that comes after the storm unless you have sat in the middle of the storm. Uh, what you're doing when you endure those trials is you're exploring the depths of life that you would never have touched had trial not pushed you into them. Oswald Chambers, in a quote that I'd read years and years ago, he said, there are some things that are only learned in a fiery furnace. <laughs> I, I can speak in tongues. There are some things only, and even if you don't believe in that, I could, all right? So back off. There's some things <laughs> only learned in a fiery furnace. Let me move on. I might come back to that. <laughs> Third point, if you're following along at all. There we go. The perspective and power of wisdom. What James says in verses 5 through 8 is crucial because what he does is he hinges this movement from going from trials to joy in trials. The hinge that turns us to that place is wisdom. It's wisdom. Now, there are two pieces to wisdom, at least. But there are two that, that I'll, I'll mention. First, there is wisdom that is applicational. Or application wisdom. Let's say it that way. Application wisdom is, is the more popular version of wisdom. It's, it's where we take insight and apply it to our life, where we actually live in a way that, that we, we refer to as integrity. That means what is inside is outside. Integrity simply means for something to be whole. Um, it comes from the, the hate math, but the word integer, um, same, same root words there. So it, it means that that's, it's a whole number. It's a whole thing. So when you have integrity, that means that what you believe in your heart is how you live with your hands and your feet and your mouth. Now, there are a lot of people who are wicked who, are very, who have a lot of integrity, right? They say that they're going to do bad things. They believe bad things, and then they do bad things. So that, there's a lot of integrity there, and I can respect that, to be perfectly honest. I'm not, not like what you do, but I respect you for at least living out what you believe. But most of the world is somewhere in the middle. We only live out about half of what we say we believe and half of what we probably even believe in our heart because we're weak people. Sorry. I'm a weak person. Um, Applicational wisdom. The second kind is illumination wisdom. Illumination wisdom. This is where I believe what James talks about with God being the father of light matters. 
James Loder is a, a professor at Princeton, and he wrote a piece about, um, he, he had experienced kind of a, a near-death experience as a result of an auto accident. And so he, he started thinking as he was in the hospital about what had happened to him and his gut-level reaction to that, to, that, um, to that situation. And so he writes this parable of sorts, and he says, a typical case is a man who commutes to work every day by train. At the station one morning, he suddenly slips and gets wedged between the train and the platform. In desperation and pain, he cries out to God that he will do anything if he can be saved. And then a few people come and they pull him out of danger. Loder says later on, in the, in the safety of a hospital room, now hear this closely, the man who was trapped decides that his promise to God was merely an expression of panic and therefore non-binding. Here's what Loder concludes from his own experience as he tells that parable. He says this. This is fascinating to me. He says, is it possible that the man was closer to the fundamental reality of his existence while he was being crushed in pain against the platform than when he was reclining in that hospital bed? See, Loder says that oftentimes when we get into situations where things are terrible or where we feel overwhelmed, we will pray in ways that later on when everything is calm, we say, man, I overreacted. I promised God I would be a missionary if I could just stop throwing up. Yeah? Praise God. (laughs) Some of that is because you were sick. Some of it self-induced over the years. Let's be honest. Okay. What Loder seems to say, and what I think is fascinating is this, that it might very well only be in those moments when we are desperate that we actually pray in a way that authentically reveals how life truly is. See, we rationalize our way out and say, I overreacted. What I think James is telling us is that's exactly the reaction that reflects reality. When you realize just how needy you are, when you realize just how much you need God in the moment that the trial has pressed you, you're actually beginning to see life more authentically. What wisdom is in this text, as best I can tell, and other commentators, not just me, but what wisdom is in this text is God giving us his spirit so we have the ability to see past the moment into a deeper reality than we saw before the moment of trial. Wisdom becomes for us revelation into a world that we never knew. But we have to experience the danger. You remember the because it's expected, in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. I've probably used this before. It's fine. It's brief. As the Pevensey children are talking to the beavers, and the beavers are whispering, saying, there's word that Aslan is on the move. The white witch won't rule forever. Aslan is coming back to take this land back over. And the Pevensey, and he tells me, well, he's, he, they're describing Aslan to him, and he's, he's a lion, for goodness sake. And so the Pevensey kids are like, is he safe? And they said, no, of course he's not safe. He's a lion, stupid. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. See, sometimes it's in those moments that we didn't think God would have led us into, in moments of danger, that we actually start to see just how good God is. Just 
going to. They said they're going to send the kids out at 1030. <laughs> but I'll be done before that. Promise you. He says, pray for wisdom. Let me just ask this rhetorically. Please don't raise your hand. When was the last time you prayed for wisdom? Hmm. When was the last time you got, walked back and forth, found a place where you were by yourself, got on your knees, stopped your car in the middle of the road? When was the last time you said, God, I can't do this. I need you to show me something in this moment. What we usually, hear, hear now closely, I'll, I'll move on. I promise I'll stop meddling. What we usually pray for is, God, please stop this from happening. What James says is, quit praying like that. Pray like this. God, show me what you're doing in me while this is happening. That is how wisdom turns trials that we would usually curse to trials that we can rejoice in. It's illumination from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow or variance. It's that we recognize that though the trial might not even have been or sent to us by God, it has passed through his hand. And so we believe that the gift God has on the other side is good because he only gives good and perfect gifts. You see why it's important that we recognize what James is talking about, God? There's a piano player in the building. I believe that. By faith, I believe there's a piano player in the building. And I'm going to ask her to start playing as soon as she wants to. The text says that if you don't ask in faith, you're a double-minded man. And you will receive nothing from the Lord. So there you go. Praise God. Faith is built up. Appreciate that. It's a miracle, y'all. I want to tell you, I want to tell you a story, and then I want to give you an illustration. Those two things are different, though they sound the same. And then we're going to pray. That's all I have left. I used this story two or three years ago. I don't know if any of you remember, but I actually preached on James 1, 2 through 8, uh, two or three years ago here at Hope. thought I did a, a decent job, but apparently not, so I'm back <laughs> with the same text. Since it's on the internet, it's not like I get a mulligan. Everybody gets to see that stinker that I did two years ago now as well. But um, <laughs> there's a story that I had read when I was studying, I believe it was for that sermon, that was fascinating to me. In 1963, one of the early um, versions of, of nuclear submarines uh, called the USS Thresher was diving deep in the water. And it made it to a level of sea pressure that collapsed all of the steel and the bulkhead in that thing, just crushed it. 123 men, I think, were killed. All of them drowned on that submarine. And the submarine sank to the bottom of the ocean. Wanting to understand what happened, the search parties took a... Um, a much stronger vessel. It just looked like a, a, just a circle. It's very, very strong. It could withstand some of the uh, deeper depths and, and deeper um, or more stronger ocean pressures. And they sent it down. And they found the thresher there at the bottom of the sea. And they could see it. They took pictures of it and, and tried to recover it. 
And, um, and what they found was that it was just, cr- it was cracked like an egg. Like it, it just could not withstand the pressure, the trial that it was under at that time. And it gave way and it was destroyed. More fascinating than that is when the researchers had their cameras under the water, and, and I've got the, the depth measurements here. Um, they were at 8,400 feet, one and a half miles down. The pressure at that depth is 3,600 pounds per square inch. 3,600 pounds per square inch. And yet all around the wreckage of this steel Just what would look on land like an impenetrable fortress. What was all around the remains of that impenetrable fortress were fish. Fish. Fish who didn't have armor plating. Fish whose skin was less than a half an inch thick. Fish were swimming at in, in the same waters where the pressure was 3,600 pounds per square inch. And it caused them to wonder, how in the world are they doing this? It doesn't make any sense. Science and research would tell us that the answer is not that those fish are stronger than the pressure. But it tells us that they stay alive at those depths because the pressure on the inside of them is the same as the pressure It's on the outside. (laughs) See, it's not about armor. And it's not about avoiding the pressure. It's about being so pressurized on the inside, so filled with the Spirit of God, that no matter what presses down on you, it cannot crush or destroy you because He is stronger than anything that comes against you. Greater is He than is in me than he that is in the world, the Bible says. There is this idea that when trials push us, they will change us because we see life differently, but they cannot destroy us because God Himself cannot be destroyed. They might us, they might scar us, they might scratch us, they might exhaust us, but he said, I have plans for you in the end where you'll be lacking in nothing, where you'll be complete and perfect, and I'm not going to let you die before you get there. Trials and temptations may come, but the wisdom that gives us the ability to sense and know what God is doing and who God is changes the way that that weight piles on top of us. Now, the fourth point, which is short. Would you please stand with me this morning? The gift we're given is the gift we become. Trials are a gift. They're a gift because of what they do in us, not a gift because of how they make us feel in the moment. The last verse of this text is so curious to me. Verse 18. He says that God has made us to be, I had you repeat that word earlier. What was it? Do you remember it? First fruits. Helfer is the guy's name. Kenneth Helfen, excuse me, is a professor of landscape architecture at the University of Oregon, which honestly sounds like a rip-roaring good time. He purchased 
this is not too, too long ago, but he purchased at a flea market something called a stereopticon. Any of you know what a stereopticon is? Good, good. <laughs> I didn't either. I had to look it up. You know what the Google Cardboard things are, right? The Oculus things. You, put, you stick a phone in it and you see things. Stereopticon is kind of like the analog version of that. It's a pair of glasses with fat, flat plates underneath. I don't know if they're fat or not, but they're flat. And they have little holders. And the Stereopticon comes. You put it on like a pair of glasses, and it comes with uh, two little cards. And there's a magnifying glass in front of your eyes, between your eyes and those cards. And you see those images in three dimensions, the way that they create. Some of you recognize this now, yeah. You didn't know it was called a Stereopticon. That's all right. That is a terrible name for it. Glasses thingy is much better. But he bought this, and he bought a stack of cards with it, just at random, at this flea market. What he saw, what those cards had on them as he was looking through this device, was this. It, they depicted scenes of shelters in French military trenches, surrounded by gardens. The places where soldiers had dove into, had dug out to try and find safety when they were being bombarded, were surrounded in these pictures by gardens. So Helfand began to investigate this further. He did some research, and he found out this, and this is fascinating to me. After a great deal of research, he discovered that gardens were often created in times of war. Gardens flanked the Western Front during World War I. Gardens were found in Jewish ghettos during World War II. You saw gardens in German POW camps. In Japanese-American internment camps in the United States, gardens showed up. And in war-torn areas of Sarajevo, gardens were planted. Even gardens are sprouting up in the deserts of Iraq and Afghanistan now in places where the war has been raging for so long. He says this. He says the gardens crop up and are created because they symbolize survival in the most difficult of circumstances. They're, they're, they're evidences of life in the midst of places that are associated with only death. They're an obdurate refusal to give to the horror of the hell so close at hand any credit at all. He coined a term, he actually wrote a book about this, and he coined the term defiant gardens. That's what he called them, defiant gardens. As we are tried and tested by the brokenness of this world, please listen closely, I'm, I'm, I'm really just done here. What God wants you to become and what he wants me to become, and this is so important, is not the evidence of a world to come. I think we've heard that for a long time, that we're supposed to be lights to show people how good heaven is going to be or show people how good God is going to be. Hear me now. What we are, what James tells us God wants us to be is literally a bloom in the desert so people know that this entire world hasn't gone under, but there are outposts of redemption here and now. Not later. Not later. See, we're so focused on what happens in eternity and what's God going to do with the world and what does heaven look like and is my mansion going to be big enough? That's so much Southern church culture. 
And if I just mocked what you believed, I'm sorry that you're offended, but I'm not sorry that I said it. Because God didn't call us to hope for a day that's to come. God put hope in our hearts while we're here now. And he said that where there is strife and where there is death and where there is war and where there is pain and where there is ugliness, you sit there and blossom and bloom and show the world that I'm not gone yet. My spirit runs to and fro across the earth. My glory will cover the earth like the water covers the seas, the Bible says. This is a different way of understanding your place in this world. But as God gives you the gift of wisdom and joy in trials, he says, I'm now re-gifting those things to the world because they need to see how the world can be redeemed now, not later, now. Your trial is a rose in the middle of blood. We put flowers in hospital rooms. They plant gardens in war-torn areas. There's actually an expression from the 30s as fascism was rising, tyrannical rule was oppressing people. They would say, they would ask this a call and response. They would say, how can you think about planting roses while the forests are burning? And then they would answer the question, how can we not think about planting roses while the forests are burning? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, please? It's such a weird sermon, and I knew it was going to be a weird sermon, and, and that's all right. So as I think they're going to sing another song and uh, give us a few moments to reflect, because I know that some of you are underneath great weight. I know that some of you are experiencing things in your family and in your body, in your professional life, that is crushing you. The pressure feels like it's too great, friends. And, and here's what I want to tell you. You do have a hope that your eternal life will be glorious. But I want you to know that God has not left you as an orphan right now. Hmm. I wonder if this morning your prayer would be for wisdom. The ability to see to the other side of what you're going through. To know what God, to catch a glimpse of what God is doing in you and the impact that that might make. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus joyfully endured the cross because of what he knew was on the other side. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. If you want to come down and be prayed for, that's fine. We will pray with you. I will pray with you. But friends, as they sing, Really, I, I want you to take a moment here to reflect. The trial that you're in, or the trial that you've been through, or the trial that you think you might be going through soon, I want you to ask for wisdom in that. And begin to declare the kind of joy that you might not see, but by faith you believe is coming. In Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, right now I ask and pray that your spirit settle over this place. You are here. And I pray, Father, that in a, in a way of introspection, Father, in a way of clarity, in a way of wisdom, in a way of grace, that you would settle into our hearts, Father. And those who are struggling right now, Jesus, I pray over them. And I ask and pray, God, 
as much as we want to pray that you would take away the struggle, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would make what is inside of them more strong than what is pressing them from the outside. Dear Lord, that the trial that they're experiencing and the temptations they're feeling to try and get out from underneath it, dear Lord, that those temptations would be cast away by the grace and glory and love of God who carries us when we cannot carry ourselves. And God, that your spirit would rise up inside of us and make us strong that we might become more like you, more complete, closer, God, to lacking in nothing. Uh, It's in Jesus' name I pray these things.